Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This week we're going to be looking at six stories. The first from the mysteriousbritain.co.uk website is entitled Christmas, Yule and the Winter Solstice. From the mysterymag.com website, Out of Place Fossils. And from the Unmuseum, The Yeti, Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas. And a story that was in the papers recently uh, could have a simple solution. An unmanned stealth bomber could have been the UFO responsible for destroying a wind turbine. From the mysteriouspeople.com website, Anne Jefferies and the Fairies. And finally from Mysteries of History, The Loot of Luzon. And our first tale this week comes from the mysteriousbritain.co.uk website. Christmas, Yule and the Winter Solstice The 25th of December is associated with the birth of Christ and the celebration of the Nativity. But it is also an amalgamation of pagan festivals and traditions dating back before the birth of Christ. 
To our ancestors, the shortest day, the 21st of December, marked the lowest ebb of the year. But it also marked the day when the sun was reborn, gradually growing in strength to the midsummer solstice. Many ancient standing stones, stone circles and other monuments are aligned with the winter sunrise on the 21st of December. The most famous being New Grange in Ireland, where a finger of sunlight shines along the dark entrance through a narrow aperture above the monument's entrance. Other sites are correspondingly aligned to the midsummer sunrise, highlighting the importance placed on these two dates. Yule was the traditional name for the celebrations around the 25th. The festival lasted for 12 days, which are now the 12 days of Christmas. The origin of the word Yule seems to originate from the Anglo-Saxon word for sun and light, most likely regarding the rebirth of the sun from the shortest day. In many places fires or candles were kindled to burn through the 12 days that mark the festivities. Another fire tradition was that of the Yule log, lit from the remains of last year's log at sunset on the 25th of December. The Yule log was often of oak or ash, and the burned remains of it were thought to guard a home against fire and lightning. The ashes were also sprinkled on the surrounding fields to ensure good luck for the coming year's harvest. The largest remaining part of the log was kept safe to kindle next year's fire. Fraser, in his book The Golden Bough, suggests that midwinter was a major fire festival in ancient times, and it is highly probable that the Yule log was a remnant of that tradition. Many of the symbols of Christmas echo its aspect of rebirth and hope in darkness. Holly was thought to be important because it retains its greenery right through the winter months, and as such is a symbol of summer life in the winter's darkness. Holly was the male symbol of this greenery, and ivy was the feminine, the two often placed together as a symbol of fecundity at the dark end of the year. There was also a belief that evergreen plants and trees were refuges for the woodland spirits through the winter months. The Christmas tree may have also been a symbol of the above aspects, although Whistler, in his English festivals, suggests that the tree is a carryover from the Roman festival of Saturnalia, when pine trees were decorated with images of Bacchus. The tradition of setting up a Christmas tree within the home is generally traced back to Prince Albert, who started the practice in 1841. Mistletoe is another plant associated with Christmas, sacred to the Druids. Its importance can be traced back to Celtic times, although the original reason for their significance is now largely forgotten. The 25th of December was also reputed to be the birthday of the Roman god Mithras and the Greek hero Dionysus. Mithras was known as the unconquered sun, hence his association with the solstice time. Early Christianity adopted the 25th as Christ's birthday around the 3rd or 4th century BC, as the early scriptures did not record the day of Christ's birth. This is generally accepted to have been a way of amalgamating Christmas with the older festival of the sun, which was still being observed by the pagan community. Today, Christmas has many other associations and traditions dating back through the centuries and stemming from different cultures and influences. 
It has always been a time for celebration and merrymaking at the dark end of the year. And there's a little footnote. Father Christmas or Santa Claus is based on St Nicholas, who is the patron saint of children, canonised after resurrecting three boys after they had been murdered. He was associated with the giving of gifts to the poor and needy and was widely famed for his generosity. Over the centuries, his image became amalgamated with other archetypes to become Father Christmas. And Daniel Parkinson was the author of this article. Today's second story comes from the www.mysterymag.com website and it's entitled Out of Place Fossils and it's written by Martin Jeffrey. Dr. Wilbur Burroughs, head of geology at Berea College, Kentucky, announced in 1928 that he had discovered 10 humanoid footprints in Carboniferous sandstone. The prints were 9.5 inches long and 6 inches across the toes. Photomicrographs and infrared photography revealed no signs of carving or artificial marking in and around the prints. The rock in which the prints were found was estimated to be 240 million years old. In 1927 at Fisher Canyon, Nevada, a fossil of a well-cut double-stitched leather sole was found by quarrymen. The rock was identified as Triassic limestone, 160 to 195 million years old. In 1851, Hiram DeWitt of Massachusetts accidentally dropped a fist-sized piece of gold-bearing quartz that he had previously brought back from California. The rock was broken apart by the fall, and inside it, DeWitt found a two-inch nail. It was slightly corroded, but entirely straight, and had a perfect head. Extensive quarrying was being done near the city of Aix-en-Provence, France, between 1786 and 1788, to provide the large quantities of limestone required for the rebuilding of the Palace of Justice. In the quarry from which this limestone was taken, the rock strata were separated from each other by layers of sand and clay. And by the time the workmen had removed 11 layers of rock, they found they had reached a depth of some 40 to 50 feet below the original ground level of the area. Beneath the 11th layer of limestone, they came to a bed of sand and began to remove it to get to the rock beneath. But in the sand they found stumps of stone pillars and fragments of half-worked rock, the same as they had themselves been excavating. They dug further and to their intense surprise found coins, the petrified handles of hammers and pieces of other petrified wooden tools. Finally they came to a large wooden board seven or eight feet long and an inch thick. Like the wooden tools, it had also been petrified and broken into pieces. When the pieces were reassembled, the workmen saw before them a quarryman's board of exactly the kind themselves used and worn in the same way as their boards were. How a stonemason's yard, equipped with the kinds of tools used in France in the late 18th century, had come to be buried 50 feet deep under layers of sand and limestone 300 million years old, will never be known. A nail partially embedded in a block of stone 
taken from a Scottish quarry, was described at a meeting for the advancement of science in 1845. Sir David Brewster, who gave the report, said that about an inch of a nail was embedded, the rest lying along the stone and projecting into a layer of gravel. The depth from which the nail was removed was not on record, but the quarry had been worked for 20 years prior to the discovery. Another report from Scotland declares that workmen quarrying near the River Tweed found a piece of gold thread embedded in a rock eight feet below ground level in 1844. Researchers in the field of -of out-of-place artefacts often believe that the findings may be proof of extraterrestrial visitors. Evidence to support this has been found principally by Dr Johannes Feibag. The following text is taken from the article Sensational Find in Russia by Hartwig Halstoff from the Ancient Skies magazine. In the years 1991 to 1993, gold prospectors on the small river Narada on the eastern side of the Ural Mountains have found unusual, mostly spiral-shaped objects. The size of these things ranges from a maximum of 3 centimetres down to an incredible three thousandths of a millimetre. To date, these inexplicable artefacts have been found in their thousands at various sites, mostly at depths between 3 and 12 metres. The spiral form objects are composed of various metals. The larger ones are of copper, while the small and very small ones are of the rare metals tungsten and molybdenum. Tungsten is a metal used for hardening steels and giving them corrosion-resistant properties, these being used principally for high-stressed weapon parts and vehicle armour. At the present time, these more than mysterious objects are being investigated by the Russian Academy of Sciences. Exact measurements of these often microscopically small objects have shown that the dimensions of the spirals are in the so-called golden mean ratio. Since ancient classical times, this fraction has been the iron rule in architecture and geometry. Its usefulness is in the fact that if a certain length is divided into two using this ratio, the ratio of the original length to the larger piece is the same as that of the larger piece to the smaller piece. As with all phenomena, researchers of anomalous fossils have very diverse and confusing theories to explain the fossil's presence. Creationists believe that the evidence points to proof of the ways of the Bible. Two groups of creationists mounted expeditions to retrieve sets of prints from the bed of the Paluxy River in Texas. Allegedly, the rocks show the tracks of a human being and a three-toed dinosaur crossing each other. One of the human prints squashes the edge of a dinosaur print. UFO researchers, especially in the case of the Ural Mountains find, believe that out-of-place fossils are evidence of extraterrestrials and time travellers. Why a time traveller would walk barefoot in Triassic times will never be known. Our third story today comes from the unmuseum.mus.pa.us website, The Yeti, Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas. The Himalaya Mountains, the highest range on Earth, have been referred to as the roof of the world. 
If that is so, there is a mystery called the Yeti in our attic. In Tibetan, the word means magical creature, and truly it is a seemingly supernatural enigma in the shape of a hairy biped creature that resembles a giant ape. The Himalayas lie on the border between India, Nepal and Tibet, now part of China. They are remote and forbidding. Large stretches around these rough valleys and peaks are uninhabited. The tallest mountain in the world, Mount Everest at 29,028 feet, lies half in Nepal, half in China. It is from Nepal, though, that most attempts to climb Everest and the surrounding mountains are made. In Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal, a visitor finds himself immersed in the Yeti legend. He is a commercial moneymaker for the tourist industry. There's even a hotel named the Yak and the Yeti, as well as legend, religion and fantasy to some of the Nepalese people. The first reliable report of the Yeti appeared in 1925 when a Greek photographer, N.A. Tombazi, working as a member of a British geological expedition in the Himalayas, was shown a creature moving in the distance across some lower slopes. The creature was almost a thousand feet away in an area with an altitude of around 15,000 feet. Unquestionably, the figure in outline was exactly like a human being, walking upright and stopping occasionally to uproot or pull at some dwarf rhododendron bushes, said Tombazi. It showed up dark against the snow and, as far as I could make out, wore no clothes. The creature disappeared before Tombazi could take a photograph and was not seen again. The group was descending though and the photographer went out of his way to see the ground where he had spotted the creature. Tombazi found footprints in the snow. They were similar in shape to those of a man but only six to seven inches long by four inches wide at the broadest part of the foot. The marks of five distinct toes and the instep were perfectly clear, but the trace of the heel was indistinct. There were 15 prints to be found, each one was one and a half to two feet apart. Then Tombazi lost the trail in thick bush. When the locals were asked to name the beast he'd seen, they told him it was a Kanchenjunga demon. Tombazi didn't think he'd seen a demon, but he couldn't figure out what the creature was either. Perhaps he'd seen a wandering Buddhist or Hindu ascetic or hermit. As the years went by, though, and other Yeti stories surfaced, Tombazi began to wonder if he'd seen one too. Yeti reports usually come in the form of tracks found, pelts offered, shapes seen at a distance, or rarely actual face-to-face encounters with the creatures. Face-to-face encounters never come with researchers looking for the Yeti, but with locals who stumble into the creature during their daily lives. Some of the best tracks ever seen were found and photographed by British mountaineers Eric Shipton and Michael Ward in 1951. They found them on the southwestern slopes of the Menlung Glacier, which lies between Tibet and Nepal at an altitude of 20,000 feet. Each print was 13 inches wide and some 18 inches long. The tracks seemed fresh and Shipton and Ward followed the trail for a mile before it disappeared in hard ice. Some scientists that viewed the photographs could not identify the tracks as any known creature. 
Others, though, felt it was probably the trail of a langua monkey or red bear. They noted the tracks in the snow, melted by the sun, can change shape and grow larger. Even so, the bear-monkey theory seems unlikely, as both of these animals normally move on all four feet. The tracks were clearly that of a biped. Shipton's and Ward's reputations argue against a hoax on their part, and the remoteness and height of the trail's location argues against them being hoaxed. Shipton's footprints were not the first or last discovered by climbers among the Himalayas. Even Sir Hedman Hillary and his Sherpa guide Tenzing Norgay, on their record ascent to the top of Mount Everest in 1953, found giant footprints on the way up. One of the more curious reports of a close encounter with a Yeti occurred in 1938. Captain Dorvan, the curator of the Victoria Memorial in Calcutta, India, was travelling the Himalayas by himself when he became snowblind. As he neared death from exposure, he was rescued by a nine-foot-tall yeti that nursed him back to health until he was able to return home by himself. In many other stories, though, the yeti hasn't been so benign. One Sherpa girl who was tending her yaks described being surprised by a large ape-like creature with black and brown hair. It started to drag her off, but seemed to be startled by her screams and let her go. It then savagely killed two of her yaks. She escaped with her life and the incident was reported to the police, who found footprints. Several expeditions have been organised to track down the Yeti, but none have found more than footprints and questionable artefacts like scalps and hides. The London Daily Mail sent an expedition in 1954. American oilman Tom Slick and F. Kirk Johnson financed trips in 1957, 58 and 59. Probably the most well-known expedition went in 1960. Sir Edmund Hillary, the same man that first climbed Everest in 1953, led the 1960 trip in association with Desmond Doig. The expedition was sponsored by the World Book Encyclopedia and was well outfitted with tripwire cameras as well as time-lapse and infrared photography. Despite a 10-month stay, the group failed to find any convincing evidence of the existence of the Yeti. The artefacts they examined two skins and a scalp, turned out to belong to two blue bears and a Soro goat. At the time, Hillary and Doig wrote off the Yeti as a legend. Later, though, Doig decided that the expedition had been too big and clumsy. They didn't see a Yeti, he agreed, but nor did they observe such animals like the snow leopard, which was known to exist. After spending 30 years in the Himalayas, Doig believes that the Yeti is actually three animals. The first is what the Sherpas call the Dzute, large shaggy animals that often attack cattle. Doig thinks this is probably the Tibetan blue bear, a creature so rare it is known only in the West through a few skins, bones and a skull. The second type, called Thelma, is probably a gibbon, a known type of ape that Doig thinks may live as far north as Nepal, though it's never been spotted past the Brahmaputra River in India. The third yeti, Mite, is the true abominable snowman of legend, a savage ape covered with black or red hair that lives at altitudes of up to 20,000 feet. 
So far there is no firm evidence to support the existence of the Yeti, but there is no way to show that he doesn't exist either. If he indeed lives in the barren, frozen upper reaches of the Himalayas, where few men dare to tread, he may find his refuge safe for a long time to come. And it's time to just relate a little bit of feedback about the podcast. And this one I found on Podcast Alley. And it was submitted by Z011104C. I don't think you can say it any other way. I love it. This is one of the best produced and interesting shows out there. It never disappoints. It also has a hypnotic effect on the listener. I think he is onto some weird podcasting Zen technique that hasn't been discovered yet. Well, thanks Z011104C for your great comment. Yes, I practice my Zen technique and try to hypnotize my listeners into thinking that this is the greatest podcast on earth. <laughs> And I also found a little bit of feedback on the iTunes store of the US. This is by TBMD. What a great podcast. Great podcast by Paul Rex. Intriguing stories about unexplained and sometimes explained mysteries throughout time and around the world. Reminds me of a show I watched as a kid called One Step Beyond. Keep them coming. I'm almost through the current ones and look forward to more. Well, thank you, TBMD, for putting the review up on the iTunes store. And remember, everyone, if you'd like to review the show, please do it through Podcast Alley or iTunes. iTunes is probably the best, as this is where I get most of my downloads. Or if you want to, you can use my email address. We used to use paulrex at paulrex.com, but I'm finding that that email address is getting a little bit overloaded, so I've made a new one. And it's mysteries at origins. Info. So it's just the one word, mysteries, at origins, which is O-R-I-G-I-N-Z, dot info. And Origins, of course, is my other podcast, and it's the website where you can find the show notes. And its web address is www.origins.info. You might have seen on the news a little while back about this wind turbine that was damaged and supposedly the UFO people thought it was a UFO that had hit it because someone had seen a light near it. But the dailymail.co.uk website has published an article with an alternative explanation and this is an article by David Wilkies. The UFO allegedly responsible for wrecking a wind turbine could have been a secret unmanned stealth bomber on test flights. The claim came from Ministry of Defence insiders who reportedly said that a black delta-wing craft called a Tyrannus was making test runs on the coastal bombing ranges at Donanook and North Coates in Lincolnshire, near to the site of the damaged turbine. The Tyrannus, named after the Celtic god of thunder, is about the same size as a Hawk jet and is equipped with stealth equipment and an autonomous artificial intelligence system. 
The plane is being developed by BAE Systems and has been designed to deliver weapons to battlefields in other continents. The UFO was spotted by hundreds of witnesses, with many believing it was the work of an alien craft. One saw orangey-yellow spheres skimming across the sky. Another reported a massive ball of light, with tentacles going right down to the ground. Then the witnesses told of an ear-splitting bang at 4am. Come dawn, and the plot thickens. At the nearby wind farm, one of the 60-foot blades from a 200-foot turbine was found ripped off. Another had been left twisted and useless. So far, so mysterious, except, of course, to the UFO experts. For them, the strange goings-on at a wind farm in Connorsholm, Lincolnshire, can be explained by a flying saucer crashing into the turbine in a close encounter that could, at last, provide the evidence of other life forms they have been waiting for all their lives. John Harrison of nearby Salt Fleetby saw the ball of light and its tentacles over the farm. It was an incredible sight. I've never seen anything like it before, he said. I have no idea what it was. Leslie Whittingham tried to photograph the scene. It looked like a giant explosion in the air, she said. Dorothy Willows saw orangey-yellow spheres. I don't believe in UFOs, but it was a low-flying object, said Mrs Willows. Her husband Stephen was woken by a sudden noise hours later on Sunday morning when the damage to the turbines happened. Could that have been the sound of a UFO hitting it? Council Chief Robert Palmer said he had seen a round object with a slight red trim hovering near the top of the turbines that night too. When I heard what had happened, I was slightly worried, so I've called for a full health and safety review, said Mr Palmer, 66. If the aliens are coming, I want to be there to meet and greet them. Yesterday your reporter visited the scene, and while I failed to see any little green men... I did find four little men in green uniforms. But they had arrived by van, not spaceship, and worked for Ecotricity, the company that had built the wind farm. UFO expert Nick Pope, a former head of the Ministry of Defence's UFO project, said, This is really a bizarre case. What's particularly exciting is that because there's been a collision, there will be residue of the object involved. Forensic science will enable this material to be recovered and analysed. This elevates this UFO case, because with most sightings, all you have is eyewitness testimony or indistinct and shaky film footage taken on a mobile phone. Despite his confidence in obtaining hard evidence, a glance around the bleak Fenland landscape provided another mystery. Having travelled billions of miles to visit Earth, why would our alien friends land in the hamlet of Connorsholm, where there are no shops and no pub? But oddly, there is an ice cream parlour. The thought had crossed the mind of the nearest resident to the wind farm. The woman who gave her name as Sheila said she saw or heard nothing on Sunday night and added, I hope that one day we will see aliens, but I doubt it will happen in that field. I've lived here for 20 years and nothing interesting has ever happened here. Much of the music for today's podcast comes from the Podsafe Music Network and they can be found at music.podshow.com. The following story comes from the www.mysteriouspeople.com website and it's entitled 
Anne Jeffries and the Fairies. A real fairy tale? A well-documented and peculiar folk tale involving a human's alleged dealings with fairies, which was also widely publicised at the time, is that of Anne Jeffries of St Teeth, Cornwall, England. The sources for the events are a March 1647 letter in the Clarendon Manuscripts, documents dealing chiefly with English history from 1608 to 1689, and a printed letter from publisher Moses Pitt to the Bishop of Gloucester, written in 1696. Pitt was writing from experience as he was born in St Teeth and was the son of Anne Jeffreys' former master and mistress. Anne Jeffreys was born in St Teeth in December 1626, the daughter of a poor labourer. She was, by all counts, a bright and curious girl, though in common with the majority of the population at this time, she never learnt to read. West County tales of fairies and pixies held a strong fascination for the girl, and she often ventured out after dusk, searching the valleys for the good people, and singing, Very fair and very bright, come and be my chosen sprite. When she was 19, Anne went into the service at the home of the wealthy Pitt family. One afternoon the girl was knitting in an arbour outside the garden gate, when something so alarming happened to her that she fell to the ground in a convulsive fit. Anne was found by members of the family and taken up to her bedroom, where she remained ill for some time. When she finally regained consciousness, the girl related an incredible story. She said that she had been in the arbour knitting when she heard a noise in the bushes. Then six tiny men appeared, all dressed completely in green, with unusually bright eyes. The leader of the fairy group, who had a red feather in his cap, spoke to her lovingly, and then jumped onto her palm, which she lifted up onto her lap. The little man then climbed up her body and began kissing her neck, which she apparently enjoyed. He then called his five companions who swarmed all over her body, kissing her until one of them put his hands over her eyes and she felt a sharp pricking sensation and everything went dark. Anne was then lifted up into the air and carried off. When she was set down again, she heard someone say, Tear, tear, and her eyes were opened. The girl found herself in a paradisiacal land of temples, palaces, gardens, lakes and brightly coloured singing birds. The richly adorned people who lived in this magical land were human-sized and spent their time dancing and playing and Anne herself was treated like royalty. She again met her fairy friend with the red feather in his cap. But whilst they were alone together, his five companions arrived accompanied by an angry mob. In the ensuing struggle, her fairy lover was wounded, trying to protect her, and the same individual who had blinded her before did so again. Anne was once more taken up into the air, this time with a great humming noise, and finally found herself back on the ground in the arbour. There seemed to have been various side effects of Anne's apparent visit to Fairyland. According to Moses Pitt, 
After the incident, she ate no food at their house, as she claimed to be nourished by the good people themselves. Anne also began to exhibit powers of clairvoyance and healing. On one occasion, she was able to heal her mistress's leg by the placing on of her hands, and before long, hordes of people from all over the country were visiting her for her cures. Anne would also foretell the identities of the people who would visit her, where they came from, and what time they would arrive. But Anne's strange abilities soon came to the attention of Justice of the Peace in Cornwall, John Tregeagle. In 1646, he accused her of communing with evil spirits and had her imprisoned in Bodmin Jail without food or drink. She was subsequently kept as a prisoner at the house of the Mayor of Bodmin, again without food. Amazingly, Anne continued to enjoy good health, being fed, as she claimed, by her fairy friends. In the end, perhaps because of the public furor aroused by the case, Anne was allowed to go free and found employment with a widowed aunt of Moses Pitt near Padstow in Cornwall. She continued to work her cures and subsequently married a man named William Warren. She was still alive in 1693, living in Devon with her husband, but refused to speak about her experiences, probably fearing further punishment. She told the brother-in-law of Moses Pitt, Mr Humphrey Martin, that she did not want her life made into books or ballads, and that she would not discuss the matter, even for £500. Incidentally, Humphrey Martin was married to Moses Pitt's sister, who as a four-year-old child had also seen Anne's fairies and had been given a silver cup by them. The case of Anne Jeffries is certainly an incredible, some might say unbelievable one. Possible explanations vary, though perhaps one of the most interesting is that Anne's experience is in some way related to modern-day alien abduction scenarios, which also feature strange sounds, miniature people and the sensation of flight. However, the incident in the arbour, which seems to have started the whole series of events, could just as easily be attributed to daydreaming and wish fulfilment, especially considering the girl's attested devotion to fairies and fairy lore. Alternatively, perhaps there was a real incident, maybe the girl was attacked or even raped by an intruder, and she was in such a state of shock that her mind, refusing to accept the horrible facts of what really happened, concocted the whole fairy abduction story as a defence mechanism. But this would not explain Anne's subsequent clairvoyance, her power to cure, or how she was able to live without eating any food, especially in the austere surroundings of Bodmin Jail and under the watchful eye of the mayor as a prisoner in his house. Moses Pitt and his family appear to have believed Anne to have some kind of special gift, and she became well known throughout England for her cures and her clairvoyance. It is clear that something happened in the arbour that triggered the onset of her strange abilities, but looking at the case more than 350 years after the events occurred, it is unlikely that we will ever know what this was. Writing of the Anne Jeffreys' tale in her Dictionary of Fairies, 
Eminent folklorist Catherine Briggs remarks on the similarities between Anne's diminutive fairies and the fairies of late 16th-17th century literature, including Shakespeare, especially A Midsummer Night's Dream, and poets Robert Herrick and Michael Drayton. She makes the point that the shared characteristics of Anne's fairies and those of the above-mentioned writers show that real country traditions and beliefs lay behind these fictional creations. And our final story today comes from the www.usnews.com website and it's from their Mysteries of History section. The Loot of Luzon. Tokyo Gold Buried in the Philippines? Really? And it's written by Mike Thupp. Shortly before his trial for war crimes, Japanese General Tomoyuki Yamashita was asked the main cause of Japan's defeat. According to historian John Dower, the General responded with the only English word he used in the entire interview. Science. Science, as it turns out, has almost nothing to do with Yamashita's personal legacy. As legend has it, Emperor Hirohito ordered him to hide tons of gold and other treasures in a maze of booby-trapped Philippine tunnels. Riches to help Japan rebuild from the ashes of its imminent defeat. Historians have never unearthed credible evidence of the Yamashita gold, but the story took on a life of its own. Today, 55 years after the stocky general walked out of his mountain redoubt and surrendered to US infantrymen, there's a ready supply of books, articles and websites about the treasure. The best-selling novel, Krypton Omicron, by Neil Stevenson, cuts between World War II and present in a tale about the gold. Earlier this year, a non-fiction secret history of Japan's Yamato dynasty breathlessly exposed a plot in which stolen Pacific War gold has underwritten Japan's post-war economic miracle. Stevenson's book is much more believable. There are many versions of the tale, but the main elements are pretty standard. Beginning in the late 1930s in Manchuria and China, Japanese teams pillaged the countries they colonised, stripping them of the most precious metals and jewels. Ultimately, this hoard was loaded onto a Japanese ship which sailed for the Philippines. The ship made land in the Philippines, the story goes, and Yamashita hid the riches on the island of Luzon in tunnels guarded by trip mines and gas canisters. After the war, the Japanese are said to have funneled the gold back to Tokyo. The legend ignores several facts. 
Yamashita was never a favourite of the military clique running the war. He was cashiered by Prime Minister Hideki Tojo. In 1944, after Tojo was removed, Yamashita was dispatched to the Philippines. From December 1944 until he handed over his sword in September 1945, Yamashita had to relocate his headquarters at least six times, driven ever deeper into the mountains and jungles by devastating US air, land and sea power. It's hard to see when he would have had time to hide all that gold. It makes a good yarn, but that may be all. We heard rumours, but we couldn't track any of them down, recalls K. Tataishi, stationed in the Philippines with the Japanese news agency Dome in 1943-1944. As far as I know, and the sources I talked to, it was a lot of hogwash. Well, that concludes episode 20 of Mysteries Abound. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I know it's been a long time coming, but we've had a few trials and tribulations along the way, and I finally got it finished. So hopefully episode 21 won't take so long. Anyway, if you like this podcast, don't forget I do another one called Origins, and it can also be found on Podcast Alley and iTunes and other good places where you get podcast feeds. The website is www.origins.info. So until next time, it's bye for now.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.